How about now? Go ahead while we're waiting on the sound. Go ahead and wake up. Matthew chapter 9. Go to Matthew chapter 9. Two things, because God's word is very, very important, and I want you to hear it as it's read, is can you hear me, number one, and number two, does it sound normal? Does it sound like I'm speaking through helium? <clears throat> Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Okay, just making sure. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 9, and today we're going to be verse 27 through 38. Verse 37, 27 through 38, as we've been coming through the gospel of Matthew together, this is where we find ourselves today. <clears throat> and I want to encourage you in something, you know, uh, pastors, pastors have to, have to stay surrendered to the text or tethered to the text of scripture at least they're supposed to in other words i can't pastors aren't supposed to think of hey i've got some things that i want to say and then i need to go find some text of scripture that help me say what i want to say they can't do that pastors are supposed to grab according to first timothy 4 13 they're supposed to grab a text of scripture and study it and dig in and know god's word and then say what the text says. They have to stay tethered to the text. They have, they have to emphasize what the text emphasizes. Now that's not only a pastor's duty. I want to encourage you. That's also for the hearers of God's word. For you who are hearing God's word. Your job is to stay tethered to the text. To not bring into this what you want to hear. Now that can happen. You can literally have in the same teaching the same sermon being preached you can have somebody say well you know what that sermon was a little too heavy on commandments and doing stuff i like christ-centered stuff you know but but the question is what does the text teach what's in the text right or the exact same sermon somebody and this actually happened a couple months back with a visitor so somebody can say uh, yeah yeah they talked a lot about Jesus and the glory of Jesus Christ and his excellencies but what about what we're supposed to do and, and that's fine we should test and make sure we're saying what the text says but those are examples of people bringing in to this hearing of God's word they're bringing into it what they want to hear not being surrendered and tethered to the text of scripture what does it say what's emphasized in the text that we're in. So as we read this, I want to encourage you. This is the Lord speaking to us through his word. What does he say in the text of scripture? What does he say in his word? Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 9. We'll start in verse 27. <clears throat> and Jesus passed on from there. And as Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him. Crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, 
The blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout, throughout, through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. <clears throat> then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. <coughs> Excuse me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we want to be a people surrendered, surrendered to your word. We want to see the glory and excellencies of Christ here. We want to obey your commands here. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to see. Give us spiritual eyes to see the glory of Christ and help us to be those that are doers of your word and not hearers only. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a quick breakdown of a way you can break down this passage just to help you understand the flow of thought. Now, if you're looking at your study guide, we're going to, be a little, we're going to go through the passage a little bit out of order. Okay, So don't look at your study guide just yet. <clears throat> but all four of these parts are here. In this passage, you got number one, Jesus heals the two blind men. That's verses 27 through 31. You've got, secondly, Jesus delivers a mute, demon-oppressed man. That's verse 32 through 34. Thirdly, you've got a summary statement of Jesus' earthly ministry that really, you know, you've got this healing of the, of the blind man, this healing of the mute, demon-oppressed man, and then you've got sort of this broadening out to get a summary statement of Jesus' ministry on earth in verse 35 and 36. And then the last part, verse 37 and 38, you get Jesus' call for us to pray for more laborers. It's his call for us to pray for more laborers. Now I want you to remember a little bit about the context as we're coming through the Gospel of Matthew. If you remember, the Gospel of Matthew has five, five major teaching blocks that you can find in it. So we came out of the first one, 
um, a few months back. And in chapters 5 through 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. That's the first teaching block. And that block ends with this phrase in chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these sayings. That's what it says. When Jesus had finished these sayings in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Now we're about to come up on the second teaching block in chapter 10. And every one of these teaching blocks ends with that same little phrase. And when these sayings, when these teachings were finished. And that's how it ends that teaching block. Now what we have in chapter 9 verse 35. We just read it. This summary statement. It said, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Teaching in their synagogues. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction. That summary, statement, that summary statement comes right before the second teaching block in chapter 10. Now, we saw something similar to that over in chapter 4. Let me read it for you. Chapter 4 is verse 23. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That sounds familiar, right? And that came... As a summary statement right before the first teaching block. And then we've got another summary statement that we just read in chapter 9. Right before the second teaching block. Now these summary statements are meant to remind us of something. I think they remind us that in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we don't have everything that Jesus did. His miracles, his teaching, his preaching. We don't have everything. In fact, the the Gospel of John says that if we had everything that Jesus did, all the miracles that he did, that the world could contain all the books that would be filled up. We wouldn't have enough room in the world for all the books, for all the mighty, magnificent things that Christ has done. And so what we have in the Gospels are selections of Christ. Here's an example of what Christ did here. Here's an example of what Christ did here. So the summary statement is he went throughout all the villages and cities preaching teaching and healing every disease every affliction that's a summary statement and then what we get in our little selections are sort of a day in the life of christ sort of a day in the life and so if you think about that look look with me at chapter 9 chapter 9 verse 18 it says while he was saying these things so while jesus is talking about fasting you remember behold A ruler came in and knelt before him saying, and you know the story there, he bows down and please come heal my daughter. And then Jesus is on his way, it's a day in the life, Jesus is on his way to heal this man's daughter, to raise her from the dead. And on the way, there's crowds all around and a lady breaks in and touches the hem of his garment. And it says, behold, it tells us that again in verse 20, behold, this lady touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. So he continues on, a day in the life, he continues on. Raises this girl from the dead. And then we see in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there. So Jesus raised the girl from the dead. And as Jesus passes on from there. What happens? Well these two. A day in the life. These two blind men start following him. And they're calling out in the middle of all the crowds. They're calling out. Son of David have mercy. Son of David have mercy. And then Jesus goes into the house it tells us. The crowds disperse. He goes into the house. The blind men follow him into the house. And he ends up healing them there in a private place. And then we find out, verse 32. Look at this little timer. As they were going away. So as the once blind men were going away. 
It's a day in the life. As the blind men were going away, or once blind men were going away, it said, Behold, behold, a demon-oppressed man who is mute shows up. And Jesus now deals with this man. And so this, this, what we're getting is we have a, a summary statement in, in verse uh, 35 and 36 of, of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ. And then we've got these selections that sort of show us a day in the life of our Savior. Now, as we dig into this, I want, I want us to begin a little bit out of order as we dig into our passage. And I want us to begin with that summary statement in verse 35 and 36. So look at, me, look, at, look at it with me. We'll come back to those two miracles that precede the summary statement. But let's look at the summary statement for just a moment. Verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So where did Jesus do his earthly ministry? What tells us here, he's going through all the cities and all the villages. He cares about the big city. He cares about the small town. He's going to save souls from them all. He's going to preach the gospel in all of these places. Now, what was Jesus' earthly ministry? What did his earthly ministry look like? What well, tells us here, it was teaching, preaching, and healing. Did you see that? He's teaching in the synagogue. He's preaching or proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. And he's healing every sickness and every disease. So his ministry is teaching, preaching, and healing. He's teaching the old. He's preaching the new. And he's performing miracles. This is exposition, proclamation, and illustration. And, and all of this is, is, is Messiah-centric. It's all about the Messiah. As he's, as he's teaching and preaching and healing, as he's, he's doing exposition, proclamation, and illustration, it's all about the Messiah. He's teaching in the synagogues what that Old Testament says about that Messiah that was supposed to come. He's proclaiming the new. He's saying the Messiah has arrived. The kingdom has come. And he's illustrating his messianic glory through this healing and miracles, every affliction, every disease. He's putting his messianic power on display. And that's really clear because think about what it said in that verse. It said he's healing every disease. Every affliction. He's literally going into cities and towns, big and small, and eradicating sickness in those places. Nothing has ever been seen like this in Israel. This is amazing. He's putting this on display that he is the Messiah. Now that's the purpose of this healing ministry that he has. You know, when he heals somebody throughout the scriptures, the scripture calls his healings signs. Signs. And signs are meant to point to something. A signpost is meant to point to something else. And they're pointing to this reality that Christ is the Messiah. We saw that in Matthew 9, verse 1 through 8, right? Remember that in Matthew 9, verse 1 through 8? Where where Jesus says that you might know that the Son of Man, that's a messianic title. He's king. He's the Daniel 7, son of man, king forever. That you might know that the son of man has power on earth, authority on earth to forgive sins. 
That's a divine title. He's the son of man who can forgive sinners. He's God. He's the God man. And he says that you might know that that's who I am. He looks at a man and says, rise up, take your bed and walk. So this, this sign, this healing sign was meant to be a sign to point them to his messianic glory. He is the Messiah. And this was promised back in Isaiah chapter 35. Let me read this passage to you real fast. In Isaiah 35, this is verse 5 and 6 about the coming of the Messiah. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, which we're going to dig into in our first miracle. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's the second miracle we'll look at here in just a moment. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So his ministry of teaching the old, preaching the new, and illustrating his, his, his power and glory through his miracles and through his healings. And it says here in verse 36, there he is, that's his ministry. In verse 36 it says, and when he saw the crowd, so as he's teaching, preaching, and healing, crowds are gathering up. His fame is spreading far and wide. And it says, when he saw the crowds, verse 36, he had compassion. That's our Savior. He's a man of compassion. He's one, that, it says it over and over again in the Gospels, he's moved with compassion. R.T. France gave a definition. It's a, a commentator on this gospel. And he gave a definition of this Greek, this Greek verb, compassion. And he says this. It's a strongly emotional Greek verb. A warm, compassionate response to need. No single English word does justice to it. Compassion, pity, sympathy, and fellow feeling all convey part of it. But, but his heart went out. Perhaps represents more fully the emotional force of the underlying metaphor of a gut response. That's our Savior. He has this gut response of his heart going out. He looks at the crowds and his heart goes out and he's full of compassion. He's full of pity. That's our Messiah. It's our Christ. Now what, according to this verse, what provoked Jesus to compassion? What provoked Jesus to be full of compassion? Was it their sickness? And, I, and I'm sure, and I, and I believe it, that Jesus had compassion on the sick. But that's not what's, what's emphasized here. It's not their sickness that stirred him up to compassion in this scripture. Was it their poverty? They were an impoverished people, and did he, was he moved with compassion because of that? I'm sure that he was, but that's not the emphasis here. It's not the emphasis here in this text. What moved him to compassion? What, what stirred up his heart and made his heart go out and had this gut response of pity? What did that to Christ? And it says here, it happened when he looked out and he saw the crowds. Listen to this. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep 
without a shepherd. What stirred him to compassion? He looked at the crowds and you know what he saw? They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're a shepherdless people. And because they have no shepherd, they're harassed and helpless, shepherdless people. And you need to understand this, that when you read your Old Testament, you study through your Old Testament, that the shepherds of the people of Israel was their king. It was their ruler. It was their leader. So to be a sheep without a shepherd means they have no king. This is a messianic reference. They're sheep without a shepherd, meaning they're a people without their Messiah. Now, a couple cross-references for you that want to jot it down and look at it later. Numbers 27, verse 17 and 18. And 1 Kings 22, verse 17. If you go to look at those two verses, both of those verses use this phrase, like sheep without a shepherd, just like Jesus used. And if you go look at it, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And what is it talking about? It's talking about a people without a leader. A people without their king. Like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks and says these people are kingless. These people are messiahless. They don't have their messiah king. Another verse. And I'm going to actually read this one to you. This is Psalm 78. Verse 70. 70 through 72. And it says this about King David. Now you remember... If you go read the life of King David in the Old Testament, over and over again, it, it emphasizes that he was a shepherd. And he would shepherd his flock, and he would care for his flock. And even, you know, even before and after he slays Goliath, you see him being a shepherd to his flock of sheep. He's a faithful shepherd. Until eventually he's the shepherd of Israel. And that's what it says here in Psalm 78, verse 70. It says, He, God, chose David his servant, and took him from the sheepfold, where he was a shepherd, from following the nursing ooze he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. David, the shepherd of Israel. And Jesus looks out, they have no David. They're sheep without a shepherd. Now another verse I want to refer you to, but also read a couple of verses. Ezekiel 34, and it's very important that you understand this. Ezekiel 34, it starts off like this. He's rebuking the so-called shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel. He's rebuking them. And look at what he says. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe, your, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not, you've not bound up. And he goes on and on and he said that my people, he goes on in this chapter to say my people, they're, they're like food for the wolves. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They have no shepherd. And then he says this, and you, and you need to get this 
messianic promise. In Ezekiel 34, verse 22, God says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd. I'm going to set up one shepherd over them. Who? It says, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I'm the Lord. I've spoken. You know what's interesting about that? When Ezekiel says that, David has been dead for a long time. So how can he say, I'm going to, the shepherds are failing, but I'm going to set up over my people, David, my shepherd. Because it was promised that through David would come one of David's son, a son of David, that would be king forever and would be the shepherd of the people of Israel. And Jesus, what moves him with compassion in our passage? He looks out over the crowds and says, they don't have their David. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're a messiahless people. It's interesting to me that Jesus, he understands humanity's deepest need. Humanity's deepest need is that they need their Messiah. They need their King. And Christ gets that. Now, I want you to think about this. How could he say that? Because Jesus is standing there as the Messiah. He is the Messiah. How can he say that's a Messiahless people? Because although some of them could see it, Some of them had their spiritual eyes open to see that he is the Messiah. For the most part, they were blind. The Messiah is right in front of them. And yet they can't see it that way. They're blind to the messianic glory of Christ. And that's going to take us back to our two miracles that precede this this summary. The healing of the blind men and the healing of the mute Demon oppressed man. Now when we, when we go back and we're going to kind of gl- read through and think through these two miracles, I want you to think about this, that you're going to see some who have spiritual eyes open to see the messianic glory of Christ. And you're going to see some that are blind. They see Christ, but they're blind to the messianic glory of Christ. They're sheep with no shepherd. So let's go back to that first miracle. This is Jesus heals the two blind men. Let's read it again, verse 27. And Jesus passed on from there. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on the son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. So we've got two blind men that are following Jesus. Now, how can they follow him if they're blind? Well, he's being surrounded by these crowds. Crowds are everywhere. They're listening to the crowds and calling out, even to the annoyance of some. They're calling out, have mercy on the son of David. Have mercy on his son of David. This is what they're saying to him. Have mercy on his son of David. Now, what do these two blind men 
believe about Christ? What do they understand about Jesus? They understand that he has an ability to heal, obviously. This is the man that just healed that lady that was sick for 12 years. This is the man that just raised this little girl from the dead. That man can heal me of my blindness. They believe that. But do they see him as just a mere healer? Or do they understand that his healing is a sign that's meant to draw their attention? That's the Messiah. Yes, they picked up the sign. You know how we know it? They call him the son of David. It's a messianic title. The son of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God gave a promise to King David. David, through your lineage is going to come one who's going to be a king. But here's what's unique. He's going to be a king, and he's never going to stop being a king. He's going to be king forever. We just read in Ezekiel 34, right? I'm going to put David. David's dead, and yet he says, I'm going to put David as their shepherd. That's son of David. And these blind men understand that. They've laid hold of that. Their, their eyes are open. Although they're blind physically, their eyes are open to see. That's the son of David. That's not just one that heals. That is the son of David. That is our Messiah. Now I want you to notice their persistence. It has them calling out when all the crowds are around. As Jesus is walking back to the house. Have mercy on the son of David. Have mercy on the son of David. And then the crowds disperse. Jesus goes in the house. We know it's in private because Jesus is going to tell them, don't tell anybody what happened. So they're in private. And it's, and it's like these blind men who've been calling out to him in public. Now they enter into the house behind Jesus and they're still saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Just the persistence of these men. It's like Jesus has not heard them, but they keep coming and they keep coming. Listen, if you're lost here today, this is the way you need to come to Christ. This, this persistence is a good quality. It's like in Isaiah 62. You go read Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7, and, 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 and it says that these, uh, these watchmen on the wall, they gave God no rest until he made Jerusalem a praise in the earth. And if you're lost here today, you need to do that. You, you, you need to come to him and come to him and come to him. Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. Until your soul is saved. Now I want you to notice, Jesus has a focus. He has a priority here. Not just on physical sight, but on spiritual sight. In this passage. And you can see that because two blind men come to him. And when they meet him in the private house, they're in private, they're in the house. What does Jesus ask them? He says, do you believe? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? That's spiritual sight language. Do you believe? I know you don't have physical eyes to see, but do you have spiritual eyes to see that I am the Son of David? Do you see it? Do you have spiritual eyes to see that I have power to heal? Do you see it? Do you, do you believe? That's spiritual sight language. They say yes. And he follows that up with, according to your faith. That's a spiritual sight affirmation. You have faith according to your faith. You have eyes, spiritual eyes to see who I truly am. And according to your faith, be it done to you.
Again, Jesus understands humanity's deepest need, spiritual sight, not physical sight. And then after focusing on their faith, on their, on their spiritual sight, Jesus does the miracle of opening their physical eyes, which is a picture of the greatest miracle, the opening of their spiritual eyes. In other words, now the men who have spiritual eyes to see Jesus as the son of David, now they have physical eyes to see Jesus standing right in front of them. Beautiful, glorious moment. Now after this, Jesus gives them a stern warning. And you can see that in verse 30 and 31. He warns them to be silent. Don't go spread this. Don't go talking about this. Be quiet about this. Now why does Jesus give this command? And it doesn't tell us why Jesus gives this command. But it does have an emphasis, if you read it, on his, on his fame, his fame spreading. It's like his fame is getting out of hand to where he's having trouble getting into cities and villages. In fact, if you go read the passage, Mark chapter 1, verse 43 through 45, this same thing happens where he tells somebody to be silent. They disobey and they go spread it everywhere. And the result is Jesus can't go into these towns, these cities and these towns. Because of the fame getting out of hand. So it seems like it's a very practical reason that he tells them to be silent or to be quiet. Now why didn't they obey? Why do you think these men didn't obey? And again, we're not told the reason. But it would seem there's some sort of, you know, overwhelmed by the emotion of what Christ just did. That is the son of David. That is the one I, can, I couldn't see. Now I can see. And overwhelmed with emotion, they disobey and they spread it everywhere. Now I'm not making an excuse for them. They're guilty. They should have obeyed Jesus. But more than likely, they're overwhelmed with the emotions of what's just happened. Now I want to encourage you. I think we tend to be so hard on these people. We think, why didn't they just obey? All he said was, be quiet. Why couldn't they just obey this? And I just want to take that as a chance to, to turn it on us, right? Like, we're not under this command to be silent. We're under the command to spread his glory far and wide. You tell me what's worse. Disobedience to be quiet. And oh, I can't. I'm overwhelmed with emotion. Or disobedience to the command to spread it everywhere. And you say, no, nah, I'll be quiet. And I'm just using that as a way to say, brothers and sisters, maybe we shouldn't be so hard on them. Although they certainly should have obeyed the Lord. Now the second miracle. It's verse 32 through 34 where Jesus delivers the mute demon oppressed man. Let's read that again. Verse 32. As they were going away. Behold. A demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. And the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Now we don't know much about this man except that in his particular case, his disability seemed to be rooted in a demonic oppression. So he's dealing with a disability, he can't speak, he's mute, and he's dealing with a demonic oppression, which is causing this. Now, how does this man get to Jesus? How does he get to Jesus? And, and if you read it in the text here, it says he was brought to Jesus. 
Now, we don't know how he was brought. Was he brought to Jesus willingly? You would think with this demonic oppression, maybe he was brought kicking and screaming. I, I, was, I thought it was cute. I was sharing this with a, with a child, a, a little girl, this passage. And, and when we got to that part of, did they carry you know, him to Jesus kicking and screaming? The, the little girl said, um, well, yeah, they must not have been scared of those demons hurting them. Because, you know, they're going to Jesus. They'll just get healed too. And I love, I love that, that faith. But think about this man, demon-oppressed man, being brought to Jesus. I want to encourage you to be friends like this. Be, be, be people like this that bring people to Jesus, that bring your friends to Jesus, that bring the worst of the worst to Christ. Be people like that. In just a minute, Jesus is going to tell us to pray for laborers to be raised up. This is what laborers do. They bring people to Christ. Now, I want you to notice the, the theme of blindness and spiritual sight. That theme continues into this miracle, just like it was in the last miracle, the healing of the blind man. That theme of blindness and spiritual sight continues into this miracle. And, and here's, here's why I say that, because the focus here is not on the mute man being healed. It just says that in passing. When he was healed, he spoke. It's just in passing. The focus is on the responses to that miracle. What did the crowd say? What did the Pharisees say? That's the focus of the passage on the responses to these miracles. And it seems like the crowds are starting to see. Their eyes are opening. The blindness is being taken away. We haven't seen anything like this in Israel. But the Pharisees are blind as a bat. They're blind as a bat. They can't see. And then we see that continue into the summary statement. Jesus is preaching and teaching and healing. And he stands before the crowds full of compassion. He says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Because they can't see. They're blind to see their Messiah standing right here. And then the pastor is going to finish with, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, spiritual eyes are being opened. But the labors are few. Go, go open blind eyes. I want you to see this theme. Now, right here it says the crowds, the crowd says, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now, that's a massive statement. It's a massive statement that shows us the, the, how, how, how major, how intense, uh, how glorious Jesus' miracles and healings actually were. He's going into every city, every village, healing every affliction, walking on water, raising the dead. This stuff was amazing, so amazing that these people could say, man, Israel has never seen anything like this. Do you, do you get that? Like, like, have you read your Old Testament? Do you understand what Israel has seen? Israel has seen the parting of the Red Sea. Israel has seen the ten plagues. Israel has seen an angel come down and wipe out 180,000 of their enemies. Israel has seen some amazing stuff. And yet they look at the life of Christ and say, man, Israel's never seen anything like this. It's the magnitude of, the, of, of how he's putting his messianic glory on display. This is not just some little healer doing his little healing ministry. No, this is massive. And the crowds are seeing it. Their eyes are being opened. The blindness is being taken away. 
But the Pharisees, they say he cast out demons. I'll tell you what he's doing. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. Now, they're right that there are demons. And they're right that there's such a thing as a prince of demons, Satan himself. But do you see this? Do you see how blind this is? The Messiah is standing in front of them, pouring out all the signs of his messianic glory. And they say, that's satanic. That's demonic. He's casting out demons by the power of demons. They're blind. Now let's, let's pause right here for just a moment for some self-reflection, brothers and sisters. Where are you at in this? Are you like the crowds? Are you like the Pharisees? Where, where are you at in this? Are, are your eyes open to see the messianic glory of Christ? Let me ask everybody here the question that Jesus asked those blind men. Do you believe? Do you have faith? And it's really clear that faith is not just agreeing about a few facts about Jesus. No, Faith lays hold of the messianic glory of Jesus through spiritual sight. Faith is your eyes open to see the beauty of Christ, the preciousness of Christ. So where are you at on this? Are you blind to the glory of Jesus? Jesus is standing right in front of you today through the reading of his word. Are you bored with him? Did you come to church this morning just because it's a nice little religious ritual? Or did you come to the church meeting this morning because your eyes have been opened to, to the magnificence of Christ and you want to see more of him? Have your eyes been opened to see the glory of the son of David? Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Does your heart grasp how precious he is? And maybe some of you say, no, I don't see the glory of Christ. And if that's you and you say that, I want to encourage you. Like those blind men, persist, lean in, have mercy on me, son of David, have mercy on me. Go to him. Be like that lady that was, that was healed of her sickness she had for 12 years. She kept saying to herself, if only I could touch the hem of his garment. If only I could touch the hem of his garment. And she busts through the crowd and elbows through the crowds around Christ and lays hold of the hem of his garment. If you hadn't seen the glory of Christ, you need to. You need to see him for who he really is. It's faith in Christ. And if you have... If your eyes have been opened to the beauty of Christ, continue in that. Colossians 2.6 says, as you receive Christ Jesus, so continue in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus? At some point in your life, you saw how simple and wicked and unworthy you were. But then you saw the beauty of Jesus Christ dying for your sins. He laid down his life so that you could be set free. And you saw it and it was beautiful to you. And Colossians 2.6 says, continue in that. Continue and more and more of your eyes open to the beauty of Christ. I want to know him. I want to see him. I want that veil pulled back so I can know more of my Savior. Continue in that. And then turn and spend all your energy in helping other people see the glory of Christ. And that brings us to the last part of this passage. 
verse 37 and 38. This is Jesus' call for us, the disciples, to pray for laborers. Then he said to his disciples, notice that. He's looking at the crowds full of compassion. They're a messiahless people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And then his response is to look at his disciples. And he says something to them. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he's got burning compassion over a messiahless people. And what thought enters Jesus' mind? Labors. Labors. He gives them a fact. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Then he gives them a command. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out more labors into his harvest. Now this metaphor of a harvest and labors and the Lord of the harvest is not hard to understand. What's the harvest? Who's the harvest? It's the crowds. It's the multitudes of people that will come to Christ for the salvation of their souls. It's those multitudes that are like sheep without a shepherd. That's the harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? God himself. God himself. He's the Lord of the harvest. First, first Corinthians 3, 6 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. God gives the increase. We just go out and plant seeds. That's what laborers do. They just plant seeds of God's word, of God's gospel. But God gives the increase. He's sovereign over salvation. If someone's saved, it's because God moves in power. He's the Lord of the harvest. Who are the laborers? The laborers are the disciples of Jesus. Who will extend his mission. The laborers of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus. Who will extend his mission. Paul was one of those. And in Acts 26 verse 18. This is what Jesus says to Paul. I'm sending you out. Go. I'm sending you out. That you might open their eyes. Open their eyes. They're blind. I'm sending you to sheep without a shepherd. That you might open their eyes. They might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive an inheritance among those who have faith in Christ. I'm sending you out, labors, open blind eyes. Now this whole scene should produce some stuff in us. When you think about this scene of Jesus looking at the crowds, full of compassion for the Messiahless people, full of compassion. And he looks at his disciples and harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of harvest. Send out labors and do his harvest. And then he's going to actually send them out as labors. That whole scene should produce some stuff in us. It should produce compassion in us for a lost world. A desire to see laborers going out. It should produce that in us that we would desire what Christ desires. That we would long for what he longs for. It should produce obedience in us. Jesus said, pray for this. Brothers and sisters, get it in your prayer list. Make it a regular part of your prayers. God, make me a laborer. God, send out laborers. 
It ought to produce in us a desire that we would be those laborers. You know, the ones that he says, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers. The next chapter, Jesus is going to send them out as laborers. It ought to make you desire to see this and desire this, a compassion for the lost world and a longing that I want to be a laborer for King Christ. King Jesus. So let me just close this out by mentioning a few takeaways of what must we do to be faithful laborers? How can we be faithful laborers? Now there's a lot that can be said about that, but I just want to take a few takeaways from this text. What must we do to be faithful laborers? And I'm going to mention five quick points. There, have compassion like Jesus. Number two, go like Jesus. Number three, teach, preach, and heal like Jesus. Number four, pray for more laborers like Jesus. And number five, don't grow weary. Let me come back through those quickly. Number one, what must you do to be a faithful laborer from this text of scripture? Have compassion like Jesus. Consider those friends that brought their demon-oppressed friend to Christ. Have compassion. It says that when Jesus looked out on the crowds, he was provoked with compassion. Get out of your bubble and look at the lost world. Let's not be a self-centered people just looking at ourselves. It's all about us. Look out in this lost world. Doesn't it fill you with pity? They've got no king. They're headed toward eternity in hell. Be full of compassion. Pray for this for your own soul, that you would be like Christ in his compassion. Pray for this for your church, your brothers and sisters, that they'd be full of pity for the lost world. Number two, go like Jesus. That's a command in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Go. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. We see Jesus going into the cities and the villages and he's going and he's, and he's teaching in the synagogues. And then he's proclaiming the good news of the gospel. He's going everywhere. He's in the synagogue. He's in the marketplace. Go. Get out. Let's get outside of ourselves into a lost world. Light penetrating darkness. Number three. Teach, preach, and heal like Jesus. That's his ministry. Teach, preach, and heal. Let me explain that. Be an expounder. Of the word of God. Uh, there's a verse I want you to have in Acts 17. This is what Paul did in his ministry. Listen to this. Acts 17 verse 2 it says, And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he grabs the scriptures, and he, this is his ministry. He reasons with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So what's he doing in his ministry? Same thing Jesus was doing. It's a focus on the word of God. Be an expounder of the scripture. Your eloquence is not powerful. Your worldly wisdom is not powerful. But to take up God's word. And to be like light in the darkness. And whether they believe this book or not. Taking scripture and getting into the ears of other people. It's a powerful thing. Be a proclaimer. Herald the gospel with passion, 
with fire in your bones. Your word was like fire in my bones. I couldn't hold it back, Jeremiah said. And be a healer. Now, I, let me qualify that one. I do not mean be a healer to show everyone your messianic glory. That'd be a problem for many reasons. One, you can't do it. Two, you have no messianic glory. No one's going to be a healer in the way Christ was a healer. Nobody. Nobody. That was for a purpose. But you can't have compassion and love and pity for the suffering in this world. You can, like Jesus said, give a cup of cold water in the name of Christ. Give that cup of cold water, that love for the suffering of others that undergirds this message of the gospel. Be a healer in that sense. Number four, pray. Just obey this text. Pray for more laborers. Do it regularly. Brothers and sisters, pray it. Every, I, I, Jesus said, when you pray, go into the secret place. Pray to your fathers in heaven. I want us all to have a vibrant secret, secret life of prayer, secret place life of prayer, Matthew 6, 6. And part of that praying ought to be, oh God, make us laborers for your kingdom. And oh God, raise up laborers in this church and in the world. Raise up seed planters. Raise up those that will go out and open blind eyes and bring them out of darkness and into light. Like Jesus told Paul to do. And then lastly, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in this. I really do believe, I, as I pray through this passage, I really believe that there's, this can be represented all over this room, that there's brothers and sisters here that have gone after this. You have gone after being a laborer in the kingdom of Christ, sharing his gospel, preaching the truth, getting the word out, preaching, teaching, and healing. That's what you've been going after. And yet you feel tempted. Or maybe not tempted is not the right word. You, you, you're tempted to give up because you feel weary. Maybe you don't see the fruit you expected to see. Maybe you're tired. Maybe there's a lot of other things going on in life and you're tempted to grow weary. You're tempted to grow weary. And God's word says, don't grow weary in doing good. In due season you shall reap if you don't lose heart. You know those who don't reap? Those that do lose heart and those that stop planting those seeds. They stop being a laborer. Don't grow weary, brothers and sisters. And I want to give you this scripture to encourage you in that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'll close with this. A sweet verse. To encourage your soul. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, and I'm saying this to all of you, my laborers, you laborers in the kingdom of Christ, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, don't be moved from this place. Don't grow weary in doing good. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And here's the encouragement. Knowing this. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord your labor. Don't grow weary. In the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these examples of your glory and your beauty. Lord, your, 
You are the Lord of the harvest that opens blind spiritual eyes. And God, I praise you that all across this room are your people. You've opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ. Thank you for that, Lord. And God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with a passion. A passion that is expressed here. A passion to make your, make your name known in all the earth. To be laborers in your kingdom. Fill our hearts with it, Lord. Fill our hearts with more and more revelation of the glory and beauty and excellencies of Christ and fill our hearts with a desire to make that known in our families, in the public square, everywhere, Lord. Help us, Lord, and thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.